Hello, friends. Welcome back to Lingering on the Lectionary, where we reflect on the life of the churches, the local academy, and the rhythm of the church's liturgy. Thanks for being here. Today I talk with my friend Dr. Billy Marsh, who teaches at Cedarville University and is the director of our Master of Divinity program here. We talk about some of his recent work on Martin Luther, his Reformation commentary on Matthew, and the encouragement that historical theology can provide for believers. Thanks for listening. All right. Welcome, Billy. Thanks for being here. Today we're going to discuss some of your work in the Reformation era, uh, Martin Luther and maybe systematic theology. But first, could you kind of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do at Cedarville uh, down the hall there and uh, what some of your maybe some of your primary interests in research are? Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Dr. Spellman. And uh, appreciate you having me on and the invitation. I'm always looking for as much table talk with you as I can get. So sweet. uh, This is a good time for me. And a little bit about myself, what I do at Cedarville. So going into ninth year here, um, associate prof of theology, help teach with you and and, uh, Dr. Kimball, the major uh, systematic electives in our program across the board, and then also theology two in the Bible minor, and then I get the unique opportunity to teach a lot of our incoming majors, Bible majors, that is, um, in uh, a Bible and the Gospel class in the fall, which is a lot of fun. And uh, so on any given day, I'm teaching students at the very beginning of their career here to possibly their last semester. Um, So um, there's a lot going on within that, too, from overseeing internships uh, that are part of my MDiv director role. So in addition to being associate prof, I also serve as the Master of Divinity director. Uh, The MDiv was launched at Cedarville in 16, and that second year I became the assistant dean for graduate programs. So it was over the MDiv and the MN, but then a year later, the MDiv was plenty on its own, and so pretty much been over that for most of its uh, time here at Cedarville. So that's a, that's a, that's the bulk of what I do, eight mm-hmm. to five here, and some beyond that. But so as you're thinking, like um, you know, some of your roles there, but also like uh, research interests. What are the? What, how would you characterize that? Um, I don't think I've asked you this in a while. Uh, like, how would you characterize what your primary research interests are? Yeah, my primary interest, interests probably are very uh, much in the same line that they've been since we were doing, um, you know, our own doctoral studies together, which I still have lots of interest in the field of theological method, theological interpretation, hermeneutics, always history of exegesis and interpretation. My my systematic interest in terms of doctrinal loci, that was something that uh, was not at the forefront during doctoral studies because I was at that point mainly looking at hermeneutics and theological mm-hmm. method, uh, so more like prolegomena. Um, but and, and I would love to, to get deeper into um, pneumatology, that's a that's a field that fascinates me. Uh, I think there's a, always lots of room for more work uh, in pneumatology. Um, but uh, I think just about at any point that I teach a doctrine, I, I want to live there for a little while, but then mm-hmm. I have to keep moving, you know. Yeah. So that's the fun thing about especially teaching upper level classes is that you have to research that. You can't just uh, teach it superficially. And so once you research it, you, you know, if you're 
a researcher, then you recognize research questions and, and possible projects and, and, and ways to engage that conversation. And so I, I kind of find myself there throughout all the doctrines that I'm kind of responsible for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say another one would be theological anthropology. That, that's one I would love to, to maybe um, have an excuse to get into more um, at the level of research. But mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> on the Reformation side, Luther's still very much a primary interest for me. He was, uh, he was not a one-off moment for me in terms of my doctoral study. So um, that was really just the, the entry point for me, hopefully to a, a, a much larger and longer uh, tenure in that field. And uh, and thankfully, I've been able to to do that um, since then. But mm-hmm. um, so Luther, as still an interpreter and reader of the Bible, but then um, I'm trying to pivot a little bit towards Luther as a a, theo- uh, a theologian in the sense of a um, systematic theologian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so demonstrating that Luther has. Uh, skills there and also things that are worth us uh, paying attention to as we find ourselves constantly thinking about retrieving mm-hmm. patristic or Reformation sources. So I, th- I think Luther uh, deserves to be heard there too. So Yeah, that's good. You mentioned uh, thinking about your research interests as to, you know, you work in a new area and then, you know, you want to stay there for a while, you know, mm-hmm. build something there. Um, thinking about, we've talked about this before, but as you know, as a Christian theologian, we're tasked with the impossible task of saying everything at once. Mm-hmm. So that's the most exciting part about systematic theology or teaching theology is not just the individual topics, but the the way that they overlap and intersect. So thinking about yeah. the spirit or teaching a class on the spirit, but also thinking about, okay, well, how does the spirit a pneumatology relate to the end times or mm-hmm. anthropology or some of the... Yeah. And so I think Historical theology is much like that as well. As you're mm-hmm. digging down into an era or a person, then you're thinking, "Oh, well, this speaks to prolegomena or the doctrine of scripture yeah. or the Christian life." You know. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, you yeah. also mentioned when uh, with Luther as a you know thinking about him as a systematic theologian. Like when you're thinking about the Reformation era, we've we've batted this around a few times as well. Thinking about. Cal, John Calvin usually gets pegged as the systematic theologian mm-hmm. and Luther as the uh, as the one who is doing occasional work or polemical work uh, in that in that regard or maybe the biblical uh, uh, theologian. Mm. Um, but if I hear you correctly, you're thinking about that those are would you say that that is a dichotomy or uh, mm. that's unjustified or would you say that there's there's reasons for those typical characterizations? And how would you like push back on that a little bit? Yeah, uh, I think we have trouble seeing Luther as a systematic um, because we primarily have that defined by modern systematic theologies. Or if you already kind of have somebody in church history that's, uh, you know, written in stone as an epitome of that, whether it's Calvin in the Institutes or even, let's say, Aquinas in the Summa. Um, then it would seem difficult that Luther would fit into that mold. You know, he's not writing um, a multi-volume systematic work. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's uh, not writing a systematic textbook, um, and he doesn't have something comparable to the Institutes. But <clears throat> I I don't believe that that is the only way in which you define system in terms of systematic theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because that has been the primary way in which it's defined, 
it's very common to find in Luther's studies that he's always primarily regarded as an Old Testament, you know, exegete or interpreter or a biblical theology guy, even maybe more than he's systematic. But, uh, you know, you have to think, go back and look at who, by whose terms are you, you letting, you know, kind of determine that evaluation. So mm -hmm. uh, for Luther, if we mean by system, somebody who has kind of a some element of unified mode of thinking about doctrine. And and even if that's like the reception of the deposit of faith or if it's his own thought, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and then not only that, but um, that it's uh, ordered in some type of theological relationship. Um, well, then I think Luther would fit that. You know, Luther's not completely scatterbrained. You know, he's, I mean, mm -hmm. definitely spontaneous and and uh, you know, irreverent and uh, is okay to, you know, contradict himself at times. But again, those are exceptions, you know, uh, in terms of his overall manner of thinking. I mean, uh, law and gospel is not, again, you know, some obscure thing that happens in one particular writing that's over the career of a corpus, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and so there, I think, are traceable elements, not only of the way that Luther uses the tradition that it would would be ordered and coherent, um, but then also this distinctive features of his own theological method or system that have stability to them across mm -hmm. a large swath, not only of years, um, but I would say also genre of writing from preaching to polemics. You know, and I and I think I've I would this is not novel to me, so I wouldn't want to take credit for it. But I, I have begun to try to tell people in answer to some of this question that you know I think the closest thing we would have to Luther in terms of systematic would be the, the Catechism. Hmm. Um, so instead of looking for an institutes for Luther, I think his systematic is the the Catechism, the large large Catechism. So hmm. um, so I think that. Now you could go on and and you know look at Augsburg and and even how you know uh, second generation Lutheran theology develops with the formula of Concord, but um, but I think the the large Catechism is underestimated for its systematic value. So okay. Os Oswald Bayer, uh, German Luther theologian, refers to that as Luther as a has a catechetical systematics. Yeah, and that helps see Luther's focus eye towards the churches. Um, and then also mm -hmm. uh, his translation work with the biblical text. And that might be a good segue to your first book was called Martin Luther on reading the Bible as Christian scripture, the Messiah in Luther's hermeneutic and biblical theology. So mm -hmm. like in light of kind of what we've been talking about, what are some of the main moves that you make in this book or what, what are you seeing about uh, what, what Luther's doing? What, what are you focusing on there? Yeah. Well, it'd be good for the readers or the hearers to know, you know, that uh, you got to see some of that work uh, in early stages, too. So whether or not we all knew what we would both end up doing, you know, you help uh, mm -hmm. help me along in real time, man, you know. And so, um, yeah, and I um, actually in one of my seminar papers cited <laughs> some of your work and uh, said called you the, a Luther whiz bang. Yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah. our professor, who will, will not be named, but hovers over everything we do, is uh, he wrote "Good Grief" next good to grief. it. Yeah, which yeah. I took to mean yeah. good. Yeah, and that it, it gave him grief uh, that he didn't uh, 
mention it first maybe i right, right. His, obviously you know, yeah his words so uh but you you did the you did the wise thing and scrubbed scrubbed it you know yeah yeah the, the, <laughs> when i did something else with that uh, i took luther whizbang out but i kept the yeah, yeah. quotation you gave me um, yeah so that's uh, okay man yeah you know but I, I know this i know i'm there in spirit if not in presence you know, <laughs> in foot yes there, so but uh yeah so a little autobiographical when I became a PhD student or at least was interviewed, you know, at that point, and you probably remember this too, you know, we had Alf, uh, Dr. Alfaro at the end of our MDiv for mm -hmm. class on theological method. I wrote a paper on kind of a Christocentric theological method at that point and uh, was wanting to pursue some type of Christocentrism, something with hermeneutics. And so Goldsworthy's book, Gospel Centered Hermeneutics, was really mm -hmm. interesting to me. and trying to get after something along those lines. So I presented that when I was interviewing uh, for the PhD as a possible project, something Christ-centered reading of the Bible, et cetera. Well, and, um, but, you know, also had Reformation studies alongside my systematic and, and always was drawn to Luther and uh, partly because of that element in his work. And so what I just kind of begun to realize was as I was reading more and more Luther, uh, I just found like, Wow, you know, um, I think most of the things I was hoping to say uh, seem to be articulated here. Um, so why don't why don't I kind of do something more, kind of historical, theological in that respect, um, rather than constructive, and uh, and so I ended up just kind of cashing in uh, with Luther in that way. And for me, what I began to find is that for Luther's Christological hermeneutic. There's all these different views about it, but most of them, many of them argued that Luther had this rigorously Christological reading of the Bible primarily due to a prior doctrinal commitment to a Christocentric view of the word. So, and it's just, you know, and, and if you have ears to hear, you can hear the modern theology kind of breaking into that, that, you know, Luther had a theology of the word that was in some ways, um, you know, d um, divisible, uh, divisible from uh, kind of a textual anchor. And so because he had a commitment to the word in this robust Christological sense, it just kind of got infused all over the Bible. And uh, so I wanted to make the argument that Luther did have a very high view of Christ in all of his reading of the scriptures, but it was because of, of the, the textual force of scripture. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to give Luther more credit for being a close reader of the Bible, um, then again, he's often given credit for. Um, you know, people like to read Luther for various things, but they don't always ha hold him in high regard as an exegete. And so, I, I wanted to show Luther as an as a at a textual uh, sensitivity to the Bible um, that was actually the thing generating that kind of Christological license that he might have had in his own mind for reading the Bible a certain way. So it kind of flipped the tables and it put me at odds with the, the bulk of kind of contemporary Luther scholarship on that subject. Yeah, and you, you focused on the prefaces uh, that Luther is providing for his translations. Um, how did you decide that particular uh, focus? Because Luther's corpus is so vast, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, at what what led you to kind of focus on the prefaces 
and then you know just maybe say a word about how for luther the prefaces are functioning is it just like translation notes or um is it is it a, a gold mine for biblical theology and hermeneutics or is it somewhere in between um so how would you see the prefaces functioning like in luther's work but then maybe also like how would that fit with luther's other writings or the way that the reformation unfolded mm. Like mm. the the effect that Luther's mm. teaching and theology was having, mm -hmm. what role did the prefaces play? Do you think? Yeah, I think what drew me into the prefaces was when I was doing some initial research into like primary source because Luther, yeah, is vast, right? So you got to find you got to find a way to um, ground yourself somewhere in Luther that again is come across as totally arbitrary, but um, you know Luther has preface to the New Testament that's pretty popular, pretty quotable by a lot of people. And in there, there are lots of these little nuggets, you know, that he makes about reading the whole Bible Christianly. So I kind of use that as an entry point, but then I was like, well, maybe I should just get to know all the prefaces um, and see what's going on there. Um, and uh, and so I began to get to know the prefaces better and recognized not only their kind of thematic um, connections, but also their literary history mm -hmm. and so uh <clears throat> really from the time that he does his september new testament um you know at the the vartberg um after worms uh he is uh, already writing um prefaces to go with those translations and then he makes his way to the old testament then to the prophets and then really from 1521 till he dies in 1546, that German Bible is in a process of being uh, revised and edited. And in, even as the translation is, is undergoing that type of treatment, so also are the prefaces. So the prefaces are kind of there always throughout the bulk of Luther's career. Um, and uh, they they are some of them undergo considerable uh, revision and editing too. So they're not just kind of, again, you know, something he wrote and then kind of just let let lay, you know. Um, and um, so I began to see them as a uh, they a collective body of work that would give me some type of credible primary source unit. Um, over the course of Luther's mature kind of life as a reformer, teacher, preacher, lecturer, um, uh, of communicating what he thought about the whole Bible and how to read it. So mm -hmm. I guess a good a good example would be his uh, preface he wrote for the Gospels um, that is attached to his uh, church postal, his collection of sermons that were put together for the everyday churchmen to preach. And uh, it's called um, a brief instruction on what to look for and expect in the Gospels, mm -hmm. and I think that 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 dualism there, what to look for and expect, uh, demonstrates that Luther sees this preface as giving people a summary, a shorthand, and also a little bit of theory as to how to to handle these books, and and then how to also see them within the grand scope of the whole canon. Mm -hmm. because he, he does he does coordinate them in that way. Uh, and so I just begin to use the prefaces as if Luther doesn't have like, here's how to interpret the Bible, you know, treaties. Well, that's basically what they're doing um, from, you know, one end of the canon to the other. And again, over the whole course of his life, too. 
So they just provide a really neat, uh, rich kind of sample of work that's not overridden by theory either because he's trying. This is what's fun about them is that they're they're already meant to help the new evangelical preacher preach the gospel according to the scriptures. Right. You know, um, so they're, they have an eye to the pulpit or to the parish or, you know, um, to uh, the life of pastoral ministry mm -hmm. and um, and and prefaces in general in the Middle Ages were already. I mean, they were undergoing sophistication. Um, you could see that many of them were uh, happening uh, and getting overhauled by biblical humanism. But Luther still has a very kind of down to earth feel to them. Uh, they're accessible and. Mm -hmm. uh, um, but of course, with depths, uh, also. So, uh, and I, the Messiah in the subtitle, the book, um, is because I think that what generates Luther's Christological reading of the Bible is that he's very, very much aware of the textual witness of Scripture to the messianic hope, mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's what makes Luther so uh, in love with the Old Testament because I think he really does get it. I think he understands that. Um, the New Testament is really what is it that quote you know we've talked about before out of out of Moses and the prophets springs the mm -hmm. New Testament yeah you know and uh, he believes that and that's because of what he understands about the Messiah yeah that's good well and you think about these prefaces which as you mentioned before that you might just f fly right over them or see them as insignificant but uh, with the advent of the printing press and the way that the Reformation ideas are spreading. Uh, oftentimes it was through these vernacular translations mm -hmm. in the in the pulpit that these were going into the pulpit is yeah. one of my fa favorites that I use a lot is the um, how a Christian should regard Moses. Oh, yeah, which is relatively brief, mm -hmm. but it was also uh, printed, printed and reprinted and put in the front of, um, you know, his translations of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So thinking about someone accessing this new translation but having this preface where Luther yeah. is seeking to think about the Pentateuch, but also the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, we see a pretty formative or influential mm -hmm. uh, little places. So oh, yeah. I also thought the way that you described it as well is a good, uh, just a good insight into the, the academic process for someone who's thinking about doing dissertation work or just academic work where you see an insight in one aspect of a person's or thinker's corpus and then asking that research question of is this going on in all the prefaces or yeah. you know either as yeah. a comprehensive thing or just kind of chasing that down because the answer could have been no it could have been just right. yeah these are <laughs> you know just that's right uh, just translation notes I tried or something the like seminar that. Paper first <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly well <laughs> You don't. It's also the sunk cost fallacy of like, well, if you if you read or translate all the prefaces, you're going to say something about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and a lot of people don't know too on the on your point of kind of the reception history uh, is that it, I mean uh, Tyndale and the translation of the English Bible. Um, uh, he was he was definitely dependent upon Luther's German Bible, um, and he there's pretty good evidence that. I mean, he, he all but copy pasted a lot of Luther's prefaces uh, mm -hmm. as his own prologues to the English Bible. And so 
Um, of course, there's a whole relationship there between Wittenberg and and, and Tyndale too. But um, so that's uh, they were significant for sure, and uh, they are fun. They're they're really rich, and um, some of them are only a paragraph or two, you know, but others are long. Um, the Romans one, which is real popular, uh, you can tell had a had a um, real influence of a kind of. Langton behind it too, so it, it mm -hmm. even feels a little bit idiosyncratic to the the whole. But um, but I think Luther, you can also see from them how he even views not just books of the Bible but groupings. So he's a preface to the prophets. Oh yeah, you know? um, and uh, and so and the one that's really fun is the preface to the Old Testament because it's really about the preface to the Pentateuch in some ways and how the Pentateuch serves as really um, the bedrock for the whole Bible. And so, um, so there's lots of things that I think, you know, you could read over and say, well, Luther's probably just indebted to his inheritance and then there's no doubt to that. But all that textual work that's happening is a lot of times underplayed. Um, and uh, and what I mainly tried to do is shine light on the fact that Luther's not just kind of functioning as a, a rote reader of the Bible, but then all of his distinctives are kind of formed, you know, um, outside of that, those commitments. No, I mean, he he really does see these things having, you know, textual moorings to them and 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 and, uh, and a textual direction in the scriptures of how Moses and all the prophets and the apostles are kind of saying the same thing. And that's what makes him believe Christ is the literal sense of scripture um, mm -hmm. from start to finish. So, yeah. Well, and the prefaces are good for hermeneutics and biblical theology, but also just theology and the preaching of the gospel. You mentioned the, I think, when John Wesley writes in his journal about hearing the reading of Luther's preface to the Romans, his heart was strangely warmed yeah. because he uh, heard the gospel uh, that's right. from that. Yeah, that's right. Moving out from Luther to just Reformation studies, your most recent work is your co-edited volume on uh, the magisterial uh, Matthew's Gospel in the uh, Reformation Commentary series with IVP. Uh, well, one, congratulations on that coming out. Mm, uh, thank you. But also, what would you say some of the distinctives of the commentary are, or just more broadly, like what differences do you see between the way that commentators worked in the Reformation era and then, uh, you know, the way that we typically do mm. biblical studies today? Mm. Well, one of the distinctives would have to be that there's just a really nice sentimental acknowledgement to Dr. Spellman, you know, near the front. <laughs> well, I mean, that's as as they say, worth the price of the book. I mean, <laughs> that's right. As they speaking say, speaking of prefaces, yeah, <laughs> don't skip over them. Yeah, uh, that's right. The distinctives in the commentary. I mean, I hope in some ways, you know, they it wouldn't be too too much different from what most people would encounter in the rest of the series um, uh, and uh, which is a good collection sampling of a, a vast amount of interpretive and exegetical resources from that period of the church mm -hmm. um, that should be of a special interest to Protestant Christianity today. So, you know, of, of course, the ancient Christian commentary set would be too, but for Protestant evangelicals, wow, what a resource to have the actual Reformation commentary where, um, you know, for us to kind of go back to our sources 
would be to also get all the way back to that 16th century era um, and just see how they're reading the Bible um, with kind of a refreshed evangelical, you know, vision. Um, but uh, some distinctions, I would say, um, I think one would be, and this may not be true uh, in competition with the other volumes or something or distinction from them, but there's a lot of sermons um, in the volume. Uh, so, yes, it's a Reformation commentary on Scripture, but a lot of the commentary is coming from preaching. So, uh, and that's uh, probably ties to the second feature, too, which really is the product of, uh, of uh, Jason's work, um, uh, is uh, the emphasis or highlight upon English Reformation mm -hmm. sources. So, um, and Jason's background is with that world and uh, through his study at Aberdeen with Dr. Stevens. And, um, and so, um, that shows out, I think, in the commentary more than probably any volume I've, I've looked through before. Um, and uh, that's, I think, unique feature because we can tend to look at the Reformation and always be drawn to maybe it is Calvin, maybe it's Luther and Calvin, maybe it's Cranmer, you know, all the kind of big names. But, yeah. oh, my gosh, you know, there's so much, there's so much. Um, and the English Reformation can get passed over pretty easily, uh, maybe for those that don't live within maybe more of a high church environment, too. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and so that would be another distinctive is just a, a highlighting of the riches of the English Reformation contributors yeah. um, alongside the standard kind of figures in the volume. Yeah, that's good. You anticipated my uh, the 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 comment I was going to make, which was going to be the uh, English the English Reformation, and then uh, what you pointed out the the diversity of uh, the types of comments from sermons, or mm -hmm. you know, because you you come across some of these sermon series from these in this era, and of course in the Patristic era too, of like a two or three hundred thousand word mm -hmm. treatise on the yeah. Lord's Prayer, right? <laughs> Where yeah. You have yeah, yeah, sermon after sermon on. Uh, but it, in some ways, it's a, a, a strong focus on particular parts of Scripture, mm -hmm. but also a uh, engagement with uh, the specific uh, theological aspects of the yeah. biblical text yeah, uh, yeah. as well. And because yeah. I remember with what Jason was working on, and then also when you came uh, alongside of him uh, as you all finished the volume up, but a lot of the comments— you know, one of the temptations in these types of projects is to go only for the the big rhetorical moves that an author is making. Mm -hmm. um, and there's plenty of that nice devotional comments in y'all's selections, but also lots of selections on thinking about like the the meaning of the text or how yeah. the text kind of unfold their literary structure or what yeah. the author is, is doing. Yeah. So I th I like that part of this uh, these selections um, as yeah. well. Yeah, that would be a, a definitely. Again, I haven't read them all enough. I mean, you can definitely tell also how the volumes have changed over over time a little bit, and uh, and so I think with our volume, those comments that we looked for, and again, Jason a long time before me too, but um, Christopher Ocker has an outstanding book um, on 
late medieval and Reformation hermeneutics called biblical poetics. Um, uh, and, uh, and he talks about there that really the reformers weren't doing anything necessarily that, that new or novel, um, that was already developing really post Aquinas during the, the middle ages, um, which was, a uh, a greater, uh, embrace of what he calls a, a textual attitude hmm. that, uh, the, uh, biblical and interpreters and readers and preachers were gaining a, a real textual attitude about how they handled the Bible. And I think that comes out in our volume, uh, which maybe comes across in the way that some of those comments look at literary features, or maybe it's the way that they're recognizing what we would call intertextual moments, maybe even canonical readings. Um, and, uh, and then even dealing with metaphor, genre, figure speech, that's in a particular text that they don't just kind of pass over. They, they try to deal with in a, 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 a careful fashion. And so mm -hmm. there's plenty, plenty of your uh, uh, flourishes, you know, too, of theology and, and rhetoric. In fact, that's actually the point Ocker makes is that if there's any real development in the Reformation in terms of interpretive practice, it's in rhetoric. Um, mm -hmm. Everything else they kind of are still getting that's from the late medieval period. And mm -hmm. so, um, and that's, I think that's a good point because it shows the influence of biblical humanism really with uh, Erasmus and on uh, of how rhetoric played within the overall uh, practice of handling the Bible. But mm -hmm. when I read it, it's, uh, there's just so much, again, I'm overwhelmed by it. Because uh, then you also recognize of, you know, how, uh, how poorly you always approach the text on your own, you know, and oh, yeah. uh, for what everybody else kind of, it feels like a natural impulse, you know, or intuition. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so it's, uh, I don't ever get enough of reading it. So, yeah, that's good. Zooming all the way back out, like, uh, what would you say, like if I'm a pastor or a professor, maybe in a different discipline or a student uh, training for ministry, what would you say to the question of why should I care about the Reformation era, Luther, or the broader field of historical theology? Mm -hmm. you know, what what benefit could it bring to pastoral ministry or you know training for ministry or you know a professor in a different discipline? How what are some of the things you would say there? Probably something a little different for each one of them. Um, mm -hmm. I I am a firm believer that the Reformation needed to happen, and so I think for those that would want to be present-day Christians in churchly settings that have the Reformation uh, as its heritage, mm -hmm. not just not just as a historical event, but as something you know that has content to it, substance. Um, Remembering the Reformation has to do with what it means to continue to um, maintain that evangelical identity. So, you know, if you want to um, be truly evangelical with a, a classical definition of that term, then I think you need to live with the Reformation because that's 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 where that's being born and and defined, and then and then um, practiced again across the board preaching catechisms, training children, right. Christian views of marriage, church-state relations, I mean, all kinds of things, right? So I, I don't think there's much substitute for being 
careful Christians in the present for good historical awareness of things that you would want to claim mm -hmm. as uh, your your heritage. For Luther in particular, I think he's at, again, the ground zero of that. So we may not all be Lutherans, but there is no Protestant evangelical uh, Reformation apart from Luther. Um, and even Calvin is uh, late to the scene um, in some ways. So Luther, I mean, if, if we wanted to generate some good character traits of what would be what we might call classical Protestant evangelicalism mm -hmm. or something like that, or theology, um, I mean, you're going to find them getting um, worked out in Luther's mature theological writings mm -hmm. that do have influence uh, for, you know, the 16th century beyond his own circle. And so, um, in fact, I was reading recently, uh, Robert Kolb did a, a monograph on Luther's freedom of a Christian, basically kind of an academic commentary on the freedom of a Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got a really uh, great chapter at the end, which goes through and documents the freedom of a Christian's influence beyond uh, Luther's life and, and up to the modern era. But he even demonstrates that in the Institutes, Calvin's use of the concept of freedom is, even though he doesn't, you know, footnote Luther, so to speak, mm -hmm. I mean, there's very clearly uh, some type of relationship going on there. Uh, and so I just think that uh, Luther is going to provide more resource than, than, again, maybe is assumed for mm -hmm. evangelicals. Uh, and, you know, that's not it's been something uh, that uh, we've been keen to, which is why we have books recently by Paul Henlicke called Luther for Evangelicals. So it's, uh, you know, I, I would hope that in some ways as a Baptist, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably I'll always have an imposter sim syndrome, you know, uh, but mm -hmm. I believe that there is a great value there to a broader reading of him for everyone. Um, and then uh, and then historical theology more broadly, Gerhard Ebeling uh, has that classic essay, Church History as the Exposition of Scripture. And, you know, one of his main points is that church history is a theological discipline because of its object uh, of study. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so, I mean, church history can end up with all kinds of things, you know, that you're looking at from power struggles to, you know, ecclesial developments and, and things, but it is reducible in some way to the church and its Bible. And therefore, at any point that you kind of parachute down into it, you know, it's a theological discipline by nature because you're reckoning with how people have continued to, to wrestle with that book. And I think we, we need, we need uh, to read the Bible, not only in community with living and breathing people, but also uh, with the communion of saints uh, across the, the centuries. And it would just be uh, a good testimony that we're not naive, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if we did so. Um, and uh, and so I think a good distinction would be, you know, that the history of interpretation or historical theology, as one as many have put it, always serves to give some type of ministerial authority in the way that we read the Bible and do doctrine. Um, not a magisterial, that's the scriptures, but uh, I 
I do believe the very simple truth that the way that God teaches us is through teaching us through others. And so hmm. whether they be uh, dead or alive right now. <laughs> so um, that's his economy of his own teaching um, us. And so so we we have to learn and, and we can learn well from uh, those that uh, have already been tried a bit mm -hmm. uh, in uh, what they've done. So excellent. Thanks for that. That's that's a good word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, what you mentioned about, I think that's a helpful uh, way to kind of sum up a lot of what we've talked about today. It could be useful, uh, this type of work could be useful as you train for ministry, as you're a, you know, doing academic work in a different discipline, mm -hmm. uh, but as the, also as in the ongoing work of uh, striving for hope as a believer, a mm -hmm. whole pastor who's trying to lead others in that hope. Um, yeah, yeah, and I also appreciate your work on Luther. I'm always encouraged and uh, learn a lot from you. Uh, there's, Aww. there's a lot in Luther to that gives you that can provide comfort, but also you know enrage mm -hmm. and make you angry. So, <laughs> much like our friendship. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, man. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, you got to have the the nicks and bruises too. Can't can't yeah. be all running through the the fields, you know. Yeah. So, but uh, all no, right, thanks, Billy. Yeah, I appreciate that, and uh, uh, you know, I should, I'd be remiss to say, you know, thanks to, uh, to uh, your friendship, and I think my own work in Luther is the result of doing theology in community, and so there's uh, fingerprints of friends all over everything that I do for sure. So grateful for that, appreciate it. Well, I'm basically gonna cut the whole episode and just air that. <laughs> <laughs>